Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. Father, we ask you to attune our hearts and our minds to why you gathered us here today, namely to study your holy word. We thank you, O Lord, for the precious words inspired by your Holy Spirit that St. Paul has faithfully written down. We ask you, Lord, to give us a pause in this season of Advent, of anticipation, and to hear the word that you have written out to us for this time that we live in, for this day and for this age. To hear that what Paul is telling the Roman church, he's telling us, the church universal, the church Catholic. Help us, O Lord, to heed the gospel, receive the gospel, and then to take up, O Lord, the work that you have given us to go forth and spread the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So Romans chapter 4 is where we're picking up at. And where we've been for the first three chapters is really a, a walkthrough from Paul of addressing this church that, if you recall, if you weren't here last week, that he's never visited Rome, at least at the time of writing this letter. Um, so he's writing a letter to a church that he has not visited, that he has not planted, as we use today in terminology. And so it's a church that does not know Paul, except maybe by word of mouth. It may have people who have seen Paul through their visits, um, like um, Aquila and Priscilla, who were from Rome. They were part of the uh, dispersion when Claudius, the emperor at the time, when he expelled all the Jews. And, uh, and we know from outside the scripture, from one of the Roman uh, writers, it was due to a dispute over Christus a misspelling of the Latin version of Christus. You can tell that the Romans were not quite understanding like what is causing this stir in the Jewish community. And it's obviously a misspelling and talking about Christ, about whether or not Christ you know, had come, you know, had died and had returned from the dead, had caused a stir in the Jewish population, like it does throughout all of Paul's missionary adventures when he preaches Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Some Jews believe, some do not, and it's very common, depending upon the place he's at, where a riot or a near riot will break out. So in Rome, they expelled the Jews uh, for a number of years, and uh, eventually that uh, expulsion, you know, we don't know if it's, or at least I am not aware of if we know if the expulsion is rescinded and they're welcome back, or if it's just simply years have passed, and so the Jewish people just start to come back and the Romans don't care as much anymore. They're like, whatever, you know, we'll just kind of turn a blind eye that you're coming back into town, into Rome. But regardless of the reason why, we now have uh, a Jewish community that is coming back to Rome, like Jewish believing Christians. So there are Christians who are Jews coming back into Rome. And the Gentiles who were converted to following Christ, uh, they were not expelled. And so therefore they've stayed within the church um, they're coming back now to what was once a Jewish-predominated Christian church to now a Gentile and Jewish church. And so that's naturally going to cause some uh, cause for concern, some cause for division uh, with these differences between the two who are now united, or at least they should be united in Christ. So Paul writes this letter, but not with any particular controversy in mind. No one's written him like in other instances where someone's written to Paul saying, we've got issues going on in Corinth. You've visited us, you've preached with us. This is what's going on. We need your help, Paul. And then Paul addresses a line of, of questions he's received. But with Romans, he's writing this, this letter with really a bit of a blank slate where they may know him or some of them may know him, 
but uh, he has not visited them yet. And he mentions in his opening how much he yearns and longs to visit them, and he shall, because as we know from Acts, he will appeal uh, essentially the trial that he has uh, there before the local rulers in Judea, and then go to Rome to have his appeal heard uh, before uh, Caesar in his court. But before then, he writes this letter, uh, the letter of Romans. He walks us through, really, what is the state of mankind, walking through how unrighteousness has abounded and how God eventually gives up humanity to our own sinful passions, to where the sin just further and further abounds as we seek ourselves. We turn away from the Creator, and as Paul says, we worship the creature. Or in our case, we just simply worship ourselves, which is really what worshiping the creature is. We are a creature, and we end up worshiping ourselves instead of typically the, the idols, the false idols that we create for ourselves. We just simply create new false idols uh, in today's world and worship them. And so therefore, in chapter 2, Paul reminds us that this is why God's righteous judgment comes out, and there's no excuse for anyone. But he says it's not just for the Gentile, it's also for the Jew as well, which would be surprising to the Jewish listeners. You've got to kind of put yourself in the place of the Roman church receiving this. That, okay, so the church at Rome that is both a Jewish and Gentile church of Christian, you know, Christ followers, Christian believers, are receiving this. And at first, the Jews may be saying to themselves, haha, yeah, Gentiles, you didn't know what you were doing. You didn't have the revelation of God, but we do. And then Paul turns on his own people and starts talking about, but we, you can tell he's shifting, talking directly to that Jewish, you know, group. You know, like, we have the law, you know, we have the revelation. And yet, if we do not do the law, it's of no profit, it's no benefit of us. The law is just going to condemn us. And so he ends by quoting several times from the Old Testament, emphasizing and referencing how, quote, this is from chapter 3, verse 11, to kind of tie us into chapter 4, that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He continues uh, quoting there in this section drawing from several uh, parts of the Old Testament literature that, of course, the Jewish believers would be very familiar with. So they would see that Paul is ending his argument that we're not justified. Just go to the Psalms. Take a look at Psalm 14 that he's quoting from, Psalm 13, which he quotes from later on, and then he quotes from parts of uh, Psalm 140, and it continues on throughout this uh, section to really put together and show that look, the prophets emphasized and showed that we, we Jews are also unrighteous. We weren't chosen as God's people to receive his revelation because we were great. It's just in God's mercy that he chose to reveal it to a people, and we were the people he chose. And he's about to get into in chapter 4 that it's because of Abraham's faith that he was chosen. And even that is a gift to Abraham. It's not that Abraham did something really good and then merited to receive the revelation of God, to receive the promise of God. And so... Paul ends here to kind of refresh us of where we're at so we understand his argument. Is that he basically shows this is the sinful state of mankind. This is why we've all fallen. This is why the law condemns, no matter if you're Jew or Gentile. And that it's the doers of the law, not the hearers, who are the ones who are rewarded with righteousness. And therefore, we get to chapter 3, verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been epiphany, has been illuminated apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And I talked about how propitiation should draw back the idea of the Jewish mindset of the sacrifices and how the sacrifices were to cleanse us. And now Paul is saying, that, like, here it is, the once-for-all sacrifice, the propitiation that truly, by his blood, you know, cleanses us. And how do we receive it? It's just by simply taking it in faith and trust is the way that we receive this gift of grace. Paul continues halfway in verse 25, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, his divine patience, he passed over the former sins. It's to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in other words, the law still stands. He's still a just God, but he's also the one who justifies us through his son, Jesus Christ, by giving us this gift of grace if we simply receive it, not by reaching out and taking it, by simply just trusting the light. It is true. What he has said is true. And I believe that. And so... Paul then, you know, emphasizes at the very end about what about our boasting? And he's saying, you know, our boasting, you know, really, you could argue it emphasizes both Jew and Gentile. I think that in this context, he's talking about, hey, we Jews, you know, what about our boasting about having the law? You know, it's, it's excluded, verse 27. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by a law of faith, of trust. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And so Paul will hear this a lot, and we'll hear it throughout Romans, where people will accuse him of, so we can just sin all we want to, as long as we just have faith in Christ, we're, we're good to go. And Paul will continually attack, no, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the law is holy, the law establishes righteousness, but the righteousness of God has appeared, has manifested outside the law. If we could keep the law completely, we would be holy, but we cannot. The law just shows how bad of a state of affairs we're in because of our sin. Going back to Adam, going back to this morning, we woke up and we failed to uphold the law. And so therefore, we need God's righteousness to be in his presence, and God himself sends his only begotten son, as John 3.16 will tell us, to accomplish, fulfill, to purify and cleanse us, redeem us, and then infuse us with the very Holy Spirit so that we may live in the newness of life that Paul's about to get into in this section that we're in. So we enter in now to chapter 4. Paul continues, and remember it's, it's all one continual letter. There's no chapters when he's writing this. Well, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? So he's still talking about we, you know, our forefather, talking to his Jewish uh, brothers and sisters. Our forefather according to the flesh. If Adam was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? And then he quotes Scripture, going back to Genesis. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, when we go to, to work and we receive a paycheck, it's not thanks for the gift. It's not a bonus. It's not a surprise. Well, even a bonus, you know, will have parameters in, in this day and age. But it's definitely, it's not a, a gift, a surprise. It's, well, yeah, I put in my hours, my time. A worker is due his wages. Paul continues in verse 5. To the one who does not work, 
but believes in, that is trust in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So then he goes back to David and quotes him from the Psalms. In Psalm 32 is where he's getting this from. Quote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul then asks, well, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? In other words, only for the Jews? Or is it also for the uncircumcised, the, the Gentiles? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. You know, he said, we're, we're quoting from scripture here. We say that faith was counted uh, to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the, of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul, in his, his normal wordy manner, but if you take a moment and kind of read through. What he's essentially saying here is Abraham had his righteousness counted to him, not because of anything he did, because he just trusted what God said. He trusted the promises of God. And then Paul makes the point, was Abraham circumcised at that point? He was like, no, nah, it was before he was circumcised. And so Paul makes the point that like he's the father of many nations, not just of one nation. You know, He's the father of many nations is the promise that's given to him in Genesis. He's the father of all those, both circumcised and uncircumcised, who have the same faith as he has. And so he's making this point to his Jewish Christians, you know, that, look, it's not the law that has made us righteous. It is Christ and his work upon the cross that sheds his blood to cover us and to make us righteous. And how do we take hold of that? By trust, by faith, just like Abraham. So it goes all the way back to knowing our Old Testament in Genesis. The Gentile listeners, you know, would probably, would, they would have learned some parts of it if they had been Gentile believers in Judaism, if they had been um, Gentile converts to Judaism, because they would have started to learn about the Old Testament, about the story that they were grafting themselves into. But you got to remember, it's been probably five or six years uh, since uh, the Jews have been expelled from Rome, and the Gentile church has continued. And so there would be Gentile converts who would not have converted to Judaism, who may or may not know the Old Testament as well. So Paul's really talking to his Jewish um, believers right now to get them to understand exactly what God has done. So he picks up in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, because remember this is also before there's the Mosaic law. Moses comes after Abraham, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations. Going back, quoting from God's promises to Abraham. I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. A great little statement there of God creating all things out of nothing. Verse 18, in hope 
he is talking about Abraham, believed against hope that he would be the father of many nations, as he had been told, told quote, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, who at that point is about 90 years old. Verse 20, no unbelief made him, that's Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness, quoting from the Genesis account. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So chapter 4 does this beautiful picture of the way we, you know, it ends with good news for both Jew and Gentile alike. Of like, this is good news. That like what God promised through Abraham is happening now. It has happened. And how do we receive this good news? Believe and trust in what he has done. He made the promise to Abraham that this would happen. He'd be the father of many nations. God has fulfilled his promise through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah both Jew and Greek alike. And so in Jesus, he has united Jew and Greek so that those who believe and have trust and faith in him will be descendants of Abraham, not by blood, but by the same faith of Abraham. And so truly God, through Jesus Christ, will rule and his dominion will go across the nations. As we hear in the gospel, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, you know, shall have believers in Christ Jesus, believers of the one true God. Chapter 5, and he's continuing with, with this theme of faith. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we have reconciliation. We were once, um, I was listening to a podcast from um, some of our Lutheran brothers. It was from 30 Minutes in the New Testament. It's a great podcast if you're ever wanting to get deeper in the Word. And they go at it even slower than what we're going at through the Word. And one of them, I forget which one of the hosts, made, made the comment talking about this verse. And he said, we were cosmic rebels. We rebelled against the one who created the cosmos. <coughs> and now we have peace and reconciliation. He has forgiven all of us traitors. And all we have to do is just say, thank you. Like, like I will accept the peace. This, this, these peace terms you give us of all I have to do is trust that you have forgiven me. Like, I accept. You know, like, there's nothing else to like. You need to go, you know, like, and, you know, march over here. You need to rebuild, you know, all that you have ruined. You need to, you know, um, drop all hostilities forever and never, ever, ever even think about rebellion again. There's no terms like you would have in a normal peace treaty of like, drop your arms, don't ever rebel again, and if you do, this is the consequence. Instead, God says, I have forgiven you. Do you believe that? Do you trust me? I'm at peace with you. And the acceptance is saying, yes, like, I believe that you have made peace with me. And so Paul here talks in verse 2 of how it's through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And that's so perfect that we talk about rejoicing on this Gaudet Sunday, this Sunday with the theme of rejoicing. You know, so it's how do we access it through faith, through trusting in this grace, this grace he's given us. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which approaches as we await Advent. Not only that, verse 3, but we rejoice 
in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is one of those verses where it just sounded like sweet poetic language to me for for years. And then as I started to become convinced and convicted through church history of liturgical Christianity, when I say liturgical, not just liturgical, but sacramental Christianity, that God relates to us, you know, through the water, through the bread, through the wine, through the physical means, God relates to us. You can't help but reread this last part of of verse 5 here and hear baptism being evoked. And Paul's going to go into baptism in a moment. So I think he does this on purpose. Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that we receive through our baptism who has been given to us. And so we see this good news of not that you receive and you believe and there is nothing but great things ahead of you. You This goes contradictory to the prosperity gospel that's affected so many. But instead... Quote, even in, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And Paul doesn't say like, you know, if you happen to suffer, but when, like that it's coming, it's going to happen, that we rejoice in our sufferings, completely contrary to the old man, to the way that we want to react, and that the suffering will produce endurance. The endurance will produce character. It will transform us, sanctify us. Character produces hope in the promises of God, and that hope isn't putting us to shame, but instead, God's love has been poured out so graciously and generously into our hearts to the power of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us by faith when we come to the fount of baptism. Verse 6, For a while we were still weak. And Paul has so much to say about this. We've gone through it before, how in his letters he talked about how he prayed for a thorn in the flesh to go away, and how Christ said, No, it is through your weakness that I am made strong. And then he emphasizes it now here in Romans. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a verse that I've heard a million times, and it's too easy just to hear it, read it, memorize it, and not think too much about it. But when we truly pause and realize how sinful we really are, we don't like to think about it. We don't like to be reminded of it. We don't really think that we're that bad off if we're really honest with ourselves. If I'm honest with you, I wake up and think I'm not that bad of a guy. And then I do something, I realize I'm far worse than I ever anticipated. I mean, like... I have an example from this past week of like of snapping at, at Kara, you know, like when I shouldn't, and I just confess, like, and then immediately, you know, like it just, mm-hmm. you know, it's like I, I'll tell you how I felt. Like I felt like Peter when he denied Jesus, you know, the third time, the crow went off, and he looks, and there's Jesus looking at him, and he runs away and weeps, you know, like, you know, it's it's the worst feeling in the world when like when you have committed a sin and it just strikes your heart, and you're like, I have violated, you know, like exactly what I was supposed to do. I have been wronged, you know, I have wronged someone and not treated them as I should. And that's where we are on a constant level with God as cosmic rebels and traitors of spitting at him, just as the soldiers spit at Christ, 
of mocking God by living our own way and lying to ourselves of like, mm, he's not really going to return. Or if he returns, it'll be after I've died. You know, I don't need to worry about that. Forgetting that there's judgment even at the death. We constantly have these thoughts, whether or not we want to admit it or not, of these sinful thoughts, the old Adam trying to pull us into looking into ourselves instead of living in the Spirit, living into the way in which God has made us to live. Not because we can do it ourselves, because we have to yield to the Spirit He's gifting us. And that's when Christ died for us. Is that our worst? That's when He died for us. The worst sin that we have ever done. Those moments when we, we snap, you know, and we say something we shouldn't, when we, we fail to do something we need to do, and we realize, like, I shouldn't have done that. You know, that was wrong. Like, that's when Christ died for us. That's when the nail went through the cross, went through his, uh, his hands and his palm uh, and his legs in order to redeem us from our sins. And so at our worst, not because, hey, we're not so bad, and so God died for us through Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, but precisely because we are at our worst, he dies for us. And he uses this example of, and I love how Paul says it. He's like, you know, people will scarcely die for a righteous person, maybe for a good person. If we're honest for ourselves, we wouldn't even take a bullet for a, a pretty good person. We all like to say, at least I think us men like to say and think that like, oh yeah, I take one for my spouse, you know, like no doubt, you know. But how about someone else that you don't know, you know, or someone that you do know really, really good, really, really nice. Would you, you know, jump in from the bullet or would there be a pause of like, well, you know, I've got to take care of my family and all, you know, like, and I mean, like, that's their life, not my life, you know, like, would you hesitate? And with Christ Jesus... With the loving God, the triune God, there's no hesitation. It's before the foundation of the world, as Scripture tells us, you know, that Christ was going to be slain for us. The Lamb who from before the foundation of the world knew that at the act of creation, like, I will go and I will die for them. That's how much I love them. I create them out of love and I die for them out of love. I redeem them out of love. And that's just, as Wesley will say, you know, amazing love. It's absolutely amazing love, you know, that the God, that our God would do that for us. Verse 9, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, there it is, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice, there it is again, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And so the life of a Christian is not kind of like um, a, you know, folding of hands, you know, and wringing your hands of like, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so terrible, you know, like, woe is me. No, it's a healthy reminder of we are not who we should be. And yet because of Christ Jesus, and then his gifting, his pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost, and through our faith and in our baptism, he is working, transforming, and making me into something new. And so it's not me, but it's him who is working through me. And so whenever I'm doing something that is good, that is honorable, that is right, I need to rejoice and give thanks to God. That's you, God, you know. On the day-to-day, -day, it may seem like I made the right choice today. You know, we talk about it like that. But it's also a good time of like, thank you, God, for helping me to do what is right. Because apart from you, there's no health in us, as we pray in the prayer book, that I need you, you know, else I'm just a miserable offender, constantly failing, and not really doing anything outside of my own interests. 
So without, apart from Christ, I'll do something good. A broken clock is right twice a day. There's plenty of people we know who are not believers who do things that are good. You know, we even say like far good than I've ever done before. But if we're not doing it out of, you know, a renewed heart, a renewed mind, a renewed spirit to glorify God, then it's really works just of our own doing. You know, it's not really works springing out of the lively faith that we confess. They're like, it's Christ who's doing it. That doesn't mean that if you do something good, you need to, to say like, well, I didn't do it with the right mindset. Probably not, you know, because we're still struggling in the flesh. But you rejoice because it's only through God, through Christ, that he's pulling me along and pushing me towards working the good uh, new works that he saved me to go forth and live in. He redeemed me for a purpose, for a purpose of serving as his servant and glorifying God. And Paul's going to emphasize this in just a moment. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So we hear that Adam is not hypothetical, but is a real live human being. And that through his sin, and notice it's through Adam who's blamed. Paul blames Adam, not Eve, because Adam is given the responsibility of watching after the one who is second made. You know, the one who is second made is not inferior to him, but is the helpmate made out of his rib. But Adam is to care for the whole garden, you know, and everything in it. And that includes his wife, his spouse. And he's right there next to her, not helping, not doing anything, just allowing the serpent, who of course Satan is using to tempt his bride, he doesn't stand up and say anything. And so the, uh, the blame lies squarely with Adam for failing in his vocation, in his task. And so death enters into the world because of error, because of sin, because of missing the mark, defying the commandment of God that God gave to Adam of do not eat of these two trees. Everything else you can eat, not of these two. And he defies that command. So sin enters into, excuse me, sin comes into the world through one man, through Adam. Death comes into the world because of that sin. Death spreads to us all because we all sin. And as Paul makes clear, look, death reigns from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning is not like the transgression of Adam. He is the type of one to come, an archetype. He is one who is pointing out that even Adam himself is really pointing to Christ. Because God in his infinite plan of love and mercy was going to send the Son of God to become the Son of Man and also to become the new man, the new Adam. In Hebrew, the word for man is, is Adam itself. And so we're going to see this new Adam. And Paul's getting ready to get into this. Verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. That free gift of grace from God is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded by for many. Excuse me. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So in other words, in that verse 17, Paul's wrapping this together. Of 
if because of Adam's trespass, death reigns throughout you know, humanity because of that one man, much more will those who are receiving the abundance of grace. It's not a small amount of grace. That abundant grace, that free gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The church fathers will say that Jesus Christ is the second Adam is recapitulating all of creation. It's kind of a large word there, but it's really Christ is taking into himself all that has been done. It's bearing all the sin of the world. And as the only righteous and clean one, he not only absorbs it, he eradicates it, he destroys it. And so all who are now found to be in Christ have his righteousness. And how do we take that free gift? Faith, faith, faith. Trust, trust, trust. Our baptism, which Paul's getting ready to get into, is showing that we are going into Christ's own death, that we are becoming so united to him that when God looks to us, he sees the reflection of God, the Son, and that he sees the love that he has for the Son is now the love he has continually for us because we are being cleansed, we are being transformed, we are being sanctified, as Paul's about to get into, and in the resurrection, we will be glorified to be like the Son. And so we will be able to stand with, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, because God the Spirit lives within us, because God the Son has died, redeemed, and cleansed us, and because God the Father has adopted us to be with his family. So verse uh, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So notice that. That's something we, we talk about in our own liturgy, that the act of justification is for all men. The, the open gift is there. The invite is for all of mankind. But only those of faith have that justification applied to them. That's the reason why we don't have all who are being redeemed. For as by one man's disobedience, verse 19, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's go straight to chapter 6, because you've got to answer this question, because he's going to answer the question everyone's thinking, well, what shall we say then, chapter 6? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. It can also be translated as God forbid. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Notice now he applies it to us. How can we who died to sin, not died in our sins, but died to sin, now live in it? Do you not know that all of us, because now the question should percolate in your mind of like, what do we mean? What do we mean? We, we died to sin. When, when did that happen, Paul? You know, like he immediately answers it. But that should be percolating our mind. How do we die to sin? Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? This is why Paul, when he uses this term, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in his letters, you should think about your baptism. Because we have been grafted into Christ Jesus through our faith. If we have faith in him, then in our baptism, we, quote, we are baptized into Christ Jesus and we were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's a union that happens in our faith and through our baptism. 
that God uses this means of water through our faith to show and to make this reality of receiving the grace that when Christ died on the cross and we're baptized into his death, we too were crucified on the cross with him because he bore our sins. That we too, in that image, and the best image, I'll admit, is immersion, which is actually a very Anglican thing to do. People think, like, oh, the Baptists like to immerse. But 1662 prayer book, you know, it was the preferable way of, like, immerse, you know, to get that visual, you know, understanding. And if someone couldn't be immersed, you would, you know, we, we say sprinkle, but you would pour the water, just like Paul talked about pouring uh, the water uh, into our hearts, talking about baptism there as well. And so we are united to Christ Jesus. We are united to his death so that we, not technically, but we somehow really did die with him on the cross. That old Adam, the sins died with him on the cross. And then just as we come out of that water and Christ came out of the grave, we are called now to walk in a newness of life, to walk in the new life, to walk in the life of the Spirit that we're gifted through our faith by the power of the Holy Spirit in our baptism. So verse 5, Paul starts to say this kind of hypothetical, look, if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, the old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, from error. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him in the resurrection. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death no longer has dominion over Christ Jesus. He's conquered it. Quote, verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a great way of like, how do we, living still in these sinful bodies, in these mortal bodies, how do we now think about living today? And Paul gives us really a great motto to even plaster above like your bathroom mirror of starting the day of like, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not because you can do it on your own, but it's because you were thrown into the waters and you came out of the waters of baptism that you are now clinging to Christ and part of Christ. And it's through him by reminding yourself, I am dead to sin. I no longer live, but Christ now lives within me, as Paul says elsewhere. So then he gives us this practical wisdom of like, what does it look like to remember your baptism, as Luther would say, to remember and consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. Verse 12. Let not sin, let not error, let not missing the mark, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your, your body parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but prevent, stop yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members, you know, your bodily members, bring it to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Verse 15, he goes back to this, this argument that people always bring up to Paul and to anyone who preaches the grace of the gospel. Well, what then? Are we to sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. By no means. God forbid. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, 
or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard or teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members, your body, you know, as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul here beautifully interweaves the picture of the old man. He's going to come back to this and start to talk um, in the next chapter for next week about living the life, the Christian life, and how it's a battle. It's a constant warring like with the sinful flesh and also living in the spirit of yielding to God, submitting to him, to surrendering to God, as you hear that language a lot. And also living in this mortal life of being, as, as Luther will call it, being sinners and saints simultaneously. Still being in the sinful body that's prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, as we sing elsewhere in the hymn, you know, uh, prone to be led astray. And so we say, and we sing, take my heart, Lord, you know, and, um, gosh, I just forgot to take my heart, let Lord, be, let it be always. always unto thee. Thank you. And, and so it's really an offering of God of our hearts. And that's why in our liturgy, in our Anglican liturgy, when we come to the Eucharistic prayer, when I'm praying, you know, not just over the, the elements of bread and wine, but also over all of us, I make this prayer saying that we're offering ourselves, our souls and our bodies, you know, everything about us over to you, God. That's the only thing we can give to you, and it belongs to you anyways. And so our sacrifice is one of praising, rejoicing, and thanksgiving, because you have great grace. Because we've got nothing really to give you. We give you everything. And hopefully we're not paying lip service over it. But we're giving, we're called to give everything about ourselves over to God in the way that we live now. Because once we were slaves to sin, we just did whatever our passions are, whatever pleases us, whatever makes us happy, you know, whatever makes you feel good. And instead of seeking, you know, our, our self, our self, our self, God is now saying, I freed you now to be slaves to righteousness, to be slaves to God. But it's a slavery with more freedom than we've ever had. Because now we don't go and commit more and more sin whose wages are death. You know, if you really want to get what you're owed, you know, what you're due, he emphasizes this wages language. The first time he talked about it, he was talking about, look, if you got a gift because you worked for it, it's not really a gift. You got what you earned. If you go to your job and you clock in, your pay is what you earned, you know. But we didn't get what we're owed, thanks be to God, because the only thing we have really worked up, you know, when we, quote, go to work in our daily lives is we keep the tab running on our sins. And so what does that mean? What, what, what do we get paid for sinning all the time? Well, those wages is death. It's cutting you off. It's the same thing that happened in the garden. You will have life, you know, by living with the Lord, obeying his commands. And his commands are quite simple and quite clear. And yet, in these mortal bodies we live in, 
we're always prone to sin. And Paul's going to get into that in chapter 7 of how you hear the law, like do or do not, and instantly these fallen bodies just want to rebel, you know, and how we're having to discipline and be submissive in the Spirit of God. Of We can't do it on our own. It's got to be grace. It's got to be a gift. It's got to be I trust you, God, because I know I can't do it, and I need all the help I can get. Um, it's the same trust that we see not just when Jesus talks about, truly I t- tell you, you know, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move, and it would be cast into the seed. You know, this great act, this great miracle through the smallest of faith. But we see how true that is on the cross itself. When one of the two thieves, who had been mocking him, changes his mind, repents, turns around, and we don't know why. We don't know what it is that, that struck this man going from mocking Christ to then believing him and saying, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And he says, truly I say unto you, on this day, you will be with me in paradise. That last ounce of faith for a man condemned to die saves him. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we think about that in modern day, think about the most heinous criminal that we've read about who's on death row, and he gets saved at the last minute, that's the kind of God that we serve. But that doesn't mean that, like, just push your luck until the very end and hope you have that little nugget of faith because the wages of our sin is death, you know. It is condemnation. And we do not know the hour or the time of his return, much less of our own, you know, demise, of when our own sins catch up with us and we go to be with the Lord or we go to condemnation. So therefore, as Paul's going to emphasize, I'm really getting over into the next few chapters, he's going to talk about how like, this is the day of salvation. It is here. It is today. And so for us, you know, we're hearing this, and it should be heard as good news, that we cannot accomplish the law. Our righteousness is nothing. It's constantly just, you know, sinning for ourselves. But when we have faith in Christ Jesus, when we realize we can't do it, we need someone else, and we yield to him, and we believe, I yield, Lord, like, I need you. And I believe what you did will do something for me. That trust, that simple trust, that imperfect trust in him redeems us. And then when we're faithful and we go into the waters of baptism, we're now united, like, into his actual death and into his resurrection. And so Paul is really hinting at right here, and we'll hear more about it later on, that we live the resurrection life now. Even though our mortal bodies will continue to go forth to, to death until the great resurrection, the great day of the Lord, which we're celebrating in this time of Advent, that is coming, that we can live the resurrected life now by simply realizing that it's not I who should live. I should consider that I am dead. I am a dead man walking. And so when I wake up, I don't live the life I want to live. I'm called to yield to the Spirit. Lord, what will you have me to do? It's why the Lord teaches his disciples to pray. You know, like they ask him, you know, Lord, you know, like how, how should we, we pray? John has taught his disciples how to pray. And we just go to the Lord's Prayer, and it answers our needs. It's not a magic incantation, but the Lord taught us this prayer, and it teaches us, like, the new life, you know, our Father. He's now our Father. That's why like, in the liturgy, I say, and so now we'll pray, you know, like so boldly what Christ has taught us to pray, our Father. It's not just his Father. It's now our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Holy, glorify. We're rejoicing in your holy name. Your will be done. That's how we should live. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day, not what we want, but just our daily bread. Just what we need to get by, which we really don't like if we're honest with ourselves. And I'm honest with you. I'm always thinking about tomorrow because we're sinners. But the call is think about today. And just give us our daily bread, our daily need. Forgive us our sins, our trespasses, because we're sinners, yes, saints. As we forgive those who sin against us. So don't forget to go out and forgive. That's walking the resurrection life. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's all we can ask of the Lord, is to lead us, guide us in the time of temptation and trial. Protect us from the evil one who wants us to stumble and to fall and to sin once more. And then that reminder in the doxology of like, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. It's not about me, me, me. Three times we hear yours, yours, yours. It's yours, God, including our lives. And of course, it's hard. It's hard to live in that resurrected life. But the good news, the grace is that like, it's abundant grace as we heard all throughout chapter five and chapter six. Abundant grace. This grace comes to us. And when we enter into suffering, we get refined like through a fire, as Paul will talk about elsewhere. We're getting refined so that we will rejoice in our sufferings because then we'll get endurance, character, hope because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it's gift, gift, gift. There's none of this mine, 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 or I take, I take, I take. Uh, it's all grace, and it's radical grace at that in terms of how much God loves us. So I'll stop there. Any thoughts or questions there? Seems like the, the, uh, you talk about justification by faith, and faith being described as, as just uh, just simple simple trust, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know which is the case. It's just that there is so much more going on there than uh, perhaps. Uh, Perhaps is uh, is sometimes apparent in some in a way that, um, say, preaching is done or, or or whatever with regard to faith. Yeah. The idea that you know uh, Roman Catholic apologists would like to point out that you know Protestants just uh, you know I believe I'm saved because Christ died for my sins and and that's you know that's it mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. It, it all is sort of uh, sort of external. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just you know I trust and then that's it and I go on with. It. And just in, fact, just in terms of the mm-hmm. of uh, of what we've uh, you know read uh, Paul saying that there is so much more going on to that, starting with the idea that faith unites us to mm-hmm. to Christ in Christ, Christ in us, the Spirit in us. Uh, also, the idea it would seem like that okay, faith is trust and trust in what Christ has done, but that it occurs in a within the context of the individual being willing to commit themselves mm-hmm. to Christ. So that yeah, it's simple trust, but the individual is also in their mind, in their attitude, whatever. Um, uh, there's also a willingness to trust, I mean, the willingness to follow Christ, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that that's there, and that that sometimes doesn't doesn't get 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 brought out. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then also that faith, if it's true faith, is going to be productive of, of good works. Yes. So mm-hmm. it just seems like when you say justified by faith, simple trust, yes, but 
there's so much so much else going on around that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and as a result of that which um, sometimes maybe particularly in Lutheran settings mm-hmm. also in Baptist settings too you know it just uh, that other those other things kind of get Get, get sidelined, yeah, yeah. Again, it becomes kind of an external mm-hmm. thing. Okay, mm-hmm. I believe I'm good to go, and that's, and no, 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 it's much, it's much more than that. And I think that, like, those who emphasize Paul, because I've heard it in many settings, you know, in which two things that, like, people talk about belief, and I like to really emphasize the word trust, because it's not a mental assent. It's not like a belief of, you know, who is the president of the United States? Well, I believe that Joe Biden is the president of the United States. You know, like, it's not like a belief to a fact, although it is a fact that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. But it's a trust, you know. And maybe I, I shouldn't have picked politics. Maybe it was actually a perfect thing to pick, you know. Like, depending upon your political persuasions, you may assent that, you know, so-and-so is in this office, but I don't trust that person, you know. And then let's bring it back home. Like, how does God illustrate us as covenant people that we are the bride and that Christ is the groom. In our own marriage, we should trust and love one another. And that's what he's saying. Like, where's your faith? Where's your trust? And if we go even further back in the Old Testament, we see the example of, we talked about it two weeks ago, I think, Hosea and Gomez, of how Gomer. God, or excuse me, Gomer, and how um, he points out that, look, Hosea, you're going to walk the line that I walk with Israel. And Gomer is going to be the representative of Israel who is faithless and then returns, faithless and returns. And that's the love that God is showing. That nothing has changed from that Old Testament image to this New Testament. It's just that what has changed is Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, and Christ has gifted us his very own Holy Spirit. So that, that faith, that trust, and Luther himself says this, you know, along with all the great reformers, that simple trust and faith means that God doesn't just leave us as is. We're like, here it is, I gave you a blank check. The bad image is, I wrote off your debts. Christ does so much more than that. Like, he cleanses and wipes us away. He doesn't make us into a clean slate so now we can just do better next time around. That's no help. We're still stuck in these sinful bodies. We still sin. But instead, he says, I pour out my very own spirit into you. I take you from being a slave to unrighteousness to now you're a slave to righteousness you're a slave of god you've been enrolled and enlisted from being in an act of rebellion to being part of god's very own army his very own body the body of the son and as paul ended in chapter six here now you've been set free from sin and become slaves of god the fruit and jesus is all about talking about the fruit the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So those whom God is, is justifying, he will not, quote, leave alone. He's also sanctifying and bringing us into his glorification at that last day. When we're in the new bodies that we just can't even comprehend if we're honest with ourselves. Not only because there's something unique and different about them when we see Jesus in the resurrection accounts, but also it's not prone to wonder and prone to sin. That, you know erring heart that we have of leaning towards being in a default of missing the mark is wiped away and that's just something we can't really imagine if we're honest with ourselves so we'll pass time here but any other questions before we close out or all righty well let's go to the lord in prayer the lord be with you most gracious heavenly father we thank you for hearing this gracious and wonderful news of how much you love us 
despite ourselves, how much you have died for us, despite our rebellions, how much, despite our mocking, our spitting, and our cursing at you, you still love us. That you, O Lord, have given promises to us, promises that we believe and we trust, that even in our darkest days, when we have failed you so greatly, that we know that you're true, that you are, as Paul says elsewhere, you are always faithful, even when we're faithless. And that's the trust that we have in you. We know that we are truly prone to wonder. We know that you have given us a gift that we need to trust in. Help us to trust more fully and more faithfully that you have given us your Holy Spirit. Help us to listen to your Holy Spirit, who is praying for us without ceasing right now, who is within us, O Lord, and who is giving us opportunities not only to flee from sin, but to pursue righteousness and to bear the fruit that you made us for. Lord, help us to rejoice in what you have done for us in our creation, upon the death and the cross, in our preservation in the new life. And help us, Lord, to constantly to yield to you that when we come to the crossroads of doing what our passions want us to do versus listening to the Holy Spirit, help us to have ears to hear and to listen and to pursue the Spirit. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the podcast for this week. We're expanding our ministries at Church of the Good Shepherd and expanding our space as well in order to better accommodate our growing church family and also to minister to our children. If you feel led to give, please feel free to text the word SHARE to 1-888-364-GIVE. Or additionally, visit us at www.goodshepherdacna.com and go over to the menu item listed Donate to Donate Online. We appreciate any help that you can give, and we hope to see you soon. Come visit us on Sundays at 9 a.m. for Bible study and at 10.30 a.m. for Sunday worship. God bless.